It's easy to get lost. This is The Revenue Maze, and I'm Valerie Cobb. Join me as we navigate the halls, dead ends, and U-turns on our path towards upward growth trajectory. The Revenue Maze is sponsored by Lodestar URY, guidance and execution through fractional revenue leadership, uncovering hidden revenue streams, and empowering small business growth through process-driven sales. I am here with a cultural wordsmith, global communication wizard, author of the language of global marketing, language and translation expert of Rapport International, Wendy Pease. So glad to have you on this show today. Hi, Valerie. Thank you so much for having me. I'm looking forward to our conversation. <laughs> me too. I, I've just loved, absolutely loved reading over all the things that you've been doing over the last few years. And I'm just a big, huge proponent of some of the things that you're doing, right? So, but before we do that, obviously with everything else on the show, I just need to ask you, what is one of your company's strategies for escaping the revenue maze? Oh, to have a weekly cash flow call. <laughs> oh, <okay. laughs> uh, uh, I'm, a, I'm a marketing business development, sales, you know, idea generator. I like to be on that side of the business. And so to have to, you know, look at the finances and deal with the, you know, revenue, the financial maze and revenue maze, I try to limit that. So, you know, I have a bookkeeper now, I use analytics solutions. And every Monday we have our call and I dread it. But we've gotten really efficient over it over the last few years. And, uh, you know, so we, we get through it. I know what's coming in and going out and projecting and budgeting and all that good stuff. <laughs> that is that's amazing. So tell me a little bit why you decided that that was the biggest thing to get you out of the revenue maze. Um, well, I invested on developing a technology platform and hired somebody to manage it and got knee deep in that and realized that there were off the shelf things that we could use. I didn't want to develop a technology. So when we found that I pulled the plug on it, but I didn't watch the expense close enough and turned around one day and went, oh crap. <laughs> Where are my cash reserves? Where how am I going to pay for this? And it sucked. I mean, it was just horrible. It kept me up at night and I was stressed about it. And so after that, I talked to them and they said, Well, are you doing a cash flow? And I'm like, I, I know what a cash flow is, but I'm not enough on it that. I can figure out exactly where the cash is at any moment. So they said, well, let's do a, a weekly cash flow call. So I get on and I still get some checks from clients and I prep those deposits and he takes things in and out of what's, you know, hit the bank account, what's expected. And we come up with a number right then and know what's coming in and what checks need to be cut or what, you know, electronic payments need to be made. Yeah. Yeah. I, I'm sure that you're aware because I, you know, for what I do as a chief revenue, fractional chief revenue officer, uh, you watch a lot of that, obviously for the future too. But one of the big statistics, even of this show, is that 99% of the small businesses fail in the first one to five years, right? 
Yeah. But I bet you, you know what the statistic, why they fail, the highest statistic as to why they fail. Do you know? No. Cash flow. <laughs> Interesting. <laughs> Interesting. So I was going to say not bringing the revenue in or not getting clients, but right. They're not managing their cash flow. And that's what got me. I mean, I was 10 years into the business when, when I kind of lost control of that and had to say, all right, I need a process. Isn't that interesting? It is. because yeah. I think one of the hardest, when you were talking about that, because um, you're, yes, you're in marketing, you're in all these wonderful things. The other statistic is that there's just not enough exposure to keep cash flow going, which it's tied to what you're doing, which is super exciting yeah. to me, right? Because 99% um, of the businesses in the United States are small businesses and in the UK, right? It's almost yeah. identical statistics. And um, when you were, when you said to get out of it, you know, let's talk about that. But people will say, well, why does revenue affect that? Why would that affect your show? And it's like, well, <laughs> if you don't have revenue coming in, there is no cash flow. But if you're not managing the cash flow, then you don't, you know, to me, they're very, they're in tech. You can make strategy decisions based on if you're monitoring that, you know, based, they go together. Yes. 100% to me. So, you know, yeah. I, I know you'll get like a CFO on and they'll go, well, those don't really, yeah. If you don't have any income coming in of any kind, any kind of stuff, there is no cash flow. You know? Right, right, right. <laughs> exactly. So they're so intertwined. Yeah. yeah. What I'm also very interested in on the uh, revenue side right now is how much farther the buyer gets on the decision-making process before they're closing and how much automation is actually working, particularly in B2B sales. Because um, I, I hear mixed things about it. I hear B2B companies that are really using automation. And then I hear other people saying, oh, no, it still has to be the human connection. And that's, a, that's an expensive resource if you're, you know, getting somebody to find leads for you. Well, I definitely have. I'm, I'm an opinionated person, but. Oh, I want to um, hear those opinions. <laughs> <laughs> but I won't use opinion. I will use just history and watching what's been going on and my own experience. There's, there's a massive, I can't, you can't, there has to be a balance between the two, right? There just has to be. And there's times when, yeah, the human element doesn't need to be there, especially like in some of the e-commerce and, and things like that. But if you um, basically the humans need automation to increase their capacity for sure. Right. Mm -hmm. um, but to get through the digital deluge and people probably disagree with me, but to get to that digital deluge with all the automation, I, you know, everything else, um, you've got to have a human being sift through some of it too. Right. I, I just haven't found a good successful way to say you only need a human and you only need automation. Right. And right. right. So we're using we're just starting to use a platform to automate some email outreach and looking for lists and stuff like that. So somebody, a human has to write the messages and think what's important to the clients and understand the bargain, the, the, the buyer's journey and what, what's going to make us sound different. So all that part of the human, but 
is it worth paying for the platform and sending out more into that digital <laughs> mass? <laughs> it, it's or is um, it Go ahead. Yeah, sorry, I interrupted you and I did not mean to. I thought you were done. Well, I paused. I paused. <laughs> <laughs> or is it better to have somebody that's, you know, doing the old-fashioned phone calls or reaching out individually on LinkedIn or using a duck soup platform to help connect? I mean, what are you seeing or working with people on? Uh, I I definitely am a proponent of a mix of it for sure. You once again you've kind of described, you need that platform um, because if I were to go back and I hope Jed Blount isn't listening, but I'm a fan and I'm kind of a, I call it a a quiet stalker, you know, (laughs) anyways. (laughs) And he, you know, he's got a lot to say around, um, you know, uh, fanatical prospecting is his book, right? And he Mm -hmm. talks about that. It's a great, great book. And sometimes to prospectors, that becomes a Bible, you know, but there's definitely what I call a 2080 rule that he talks about a little bit, you know, and that's that digital and automation. It's the long haul where the human cold calling is, is really going to move that needle. And so when we train sales teams to, or if I go into a small company and start working with them, um, typically I will bring in definitely those cold callers to follow up and to further qualify what is actually happening. But I will definitely use the social media platforms to do the broad universe, you know, and then I will not typically take just automation, the cold callers sift through and then the good leads go further to the closers and things like that, you know? And so, and that, and that is assuming that you need a B2B sales team and we're talking B2B right now. We're not talking about e-commerce. So <clears throat> complete. Right, different yeah. Complete we're B2B different services. So that's what I want to talk about. <laughs> yeah. So Jed, he has a quote and I, and I hope I don't get it wrong. It's off the top of my head, but he talks about the laws of familiarity. And when you're talking about the laws of familiarity, it takes 20 to 50 touches to get somebody familiar. So uh. at what point, and then once it's familiar, you have a better chance of them closing. Cause like you said, we all talk to our friends. There's so much digital deluge that it's like, well, I don't know which platform to go with. So what's your experience? There's probably 50,000 of them. That, and you end up asking your best friend for that question, you know, and, and it's like, well, I use this. Oh, I use this. And what was your experience? It, it, that's where. I find that there's only so much learning through the automation that it can occur. And then a human has to help sort that out later. Does that make sense? Yes. Yeah, that absolutely does make sense. And so you've got to take the time to set up the process for the automation, but somebody who really understands the company and the target has to sift through. And is that one of your cold callers or is that somebody in marketing? Or who's who's sifting well, through. and everybody kind of la- Everybody kind of does it differently. I was just on a sales audit with a company, and they had just moved their um, some of their ex- uh, customer experience, customer success people under operations, and 
I find that revenue is the overarching, they need to work hand in hand. So sometimes a business development or what we would call cold caller or an SDR sales development rep, you know, those guys will um, sometimes bridge the gap between marketing's inbound, right? Because that's your digital automation, your lead scoring, all of that stuff to say, let's hand it off to somebody to further qualify. So at times an SDR will be under a marketing team Mm. depending on the structure. I don't typically structure it that way because I find that their KPIs are more in line with more of the sales side. But when you're chief revenue, you're over marketing sales, new product development service, you know, so it buttons them all up so that they're working like a well-oiled machine in that, in that cog. And there's no, there's no breakdown with it. Okay. Now, are you um, seeing people going offshore for the SDRs or still Uh, hiring in the U S or outsourcing or. (laughs) Well, and that's why I was so excited about what you do. And I, and we need to get this back to what you do. (laughs) 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 What I, I, I've seen success with some offshoring, the challenge is the, it depends on your base. Now I'm global. Okay. So in the United States, it's hard to get, if it, if the widget is something that's hard to explain, like a service that you need to go into like a challenger model, you're not just selling a feature and benefit it's really hard for sometimes the offshore with the language barrier to do that. So if you're in the healthcare arena, that gets very difficult. And so that SDR, BDR, there's actually groups that you can buy, I say buy as an outsource um, that will appointment set, but it in that space, they need to be able to talk within the cultural vernacular of that language of preference, right? So if um, if you're speaking to somebody who is um, Hawaiian American and they speak English, it needs to back to you, what you do. Yes. Be in that, that kind of dialect or vernacular or culture, right? And yes. And so that's where I find that it depends on how big the deal size is on whether you can successfully, if you're, let's use the United States, if you're in the United States, and let's say you're outsourcing to Mexico or the Philippines, which is a big one that does a lot of outsourced cold calling or India, um, sometimes the consumers don't identify with how that cold caller talks and speaks with them. Even when you create a really good um, script for it because then it mm-hmm. well, then it becomes scripted sounding too. So if you are going to outsource, they need to be part of that team, I think, and part of your sales team. So somehow or another, you've got to have it feel like it's seamless for the customer. And so if it sounds drastically different, it's going to be hard. And you know that because that's what you've written <laughs> about. So yes. I would like to hear more about you <laughs> and how you have bridged that and how, you know, and how you're actually kind of working that through because you started, I mean, you've been in that kind of industry forever, right? How many years yeah. have you been in, in doing what you're doing right now with the, with the language and culture and all that? 
Well, I bought uh, Rapport International 17 years ago. The company's been around for uh, almost 35 years. Wow. So it's, uh, it's very exciting with all the changes that we have. But yes, exactly what you're talking about. Global marketing is my specialty. I always like talking to people who are doing marketing and sales and get their best practices and what they're seeing. So I did divert you. <laughs> and I appreciate all that you shared. Um, but yeah, I think that's one of the biggest revenue mistakes that we see our clients making is not thinking global from the start and uh you know just thinking well i've got a big enough market in the united states but you look at the e-commerce companies they're putting information up there they're getting hits from all over the world um if they're on amazon amazon's providing machine translation which just shows junk on your website or partially translated so you're not going to sell so pay attention to your metrics and see where people are coming in We've had all sorts of clients call in and saying, well, I'm getting hits from uh, China, Japan, Germany. You know, how can I respond by emails? And I'm like, ah, forget the emails. Let's look at your website and see how we can take them through the buyer's journey um, and make sure that your product or service is, you know, ready for them to use. And so there's so much potential and all the statistics show that people want to go visit websites um, in their own language. 90% of people say, even if they're bilingual, um, they'd rather look in their native language. Um, and over half of them will spend more money to get content in their own language. And 75% won't buy again if you don't have the after sales support. Yeah. And then you have to look at a lot of manufactured and consumer products. If you're going into Europe, you need to have the CE safety mark on there. And so we do a lot of translations of manuals and packaging to make sure that they're under the requirements for the CE mark. And it has to be high quality because that's your liability. So yes, that's, uh, you got to think global from the start, make sure to use high quality translation where it counts. Um, and that's what my book, you know, my book takes you through a whole, whole process, you know, why do it, what the opportunity is, um, how do you develop a strategy of which company to, or what country to enter, what language you can even go into uh, other languages in the United States and increase your sales. Spanish has so many speakers here. And um, the U.S. has the second largest Spanish-speaking population in the world. Yeah. So even just translating your, your marketing material for, for the United States is huge. Yeah. Um, we do a lot of translation into Spanish and French so people can do North American packaging. So it covers Mexico, the United States, the bilingual market in the United States, and, and, France, uh, and uh, Canada. Oh, okay. You've got to have French labeling. Yeah. 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 Well, and it just, it, it makes sense. I love how, how you've got all the metrics around it, but as you go back, you think about one of the, I mean, people buy for their reasons, right? Mm -hmm. And if you give them any reason to not buy, then there's that challenge. And you're like, well, what does that mean? Well, that means that as much as, and we all love, you know, um, diversity and inclusion and all of those things, but we can't stop a consumer from having their first 10 seconds of perception and making a decision. And if they see something in the language that doesn't identify with them because they, mm -hmm. they're comfortable. If you think about 
how you're just really comfortable being around your family, right? It, that language, that whole communication is what makes people feel comfortable with what that is, right? Yes. yes. And, I, and I have loved that. I, we talked about um, healthcare, right? Mm-hmm. And them having to do the, the, in the United States, the top 15 languages in their state, they have to have mm-hmm. it all translated. And, but taking it further with some of the ACO and payers where they will literally create care journals and all sorts of things within the cultural aspect of that same language, you know? So I, I love what you're doing. That is, yeah. that is amazing. And that's very difficult. So tell me a little bit, what's your biggest challenge today with it? You know, it's interesting. Probably the biggest challenge is finding people that understand the importance of quality translation. I mean, there's so much easy access to Google Translate or machine translation, and people don't speak the other language. They go, oh, this is cool. The machine can handle it. Like, machines handle so much for us now. But they really don't understand um, how clunky it is. And I, you know, and even the navigation, I went to a website from China and just playing around, I was looking to see if they had translation and I could see the Google plugin and I did the drop down, and all the languages were in Chinese. So I couldn't <laughs> figure out where I had to navigate to get to the English. So yeah, I could click on them and play around, but nobody else is going to do that. I wasn't going to buy. I just was doing my you know, industry research on how would it be. And so if you put the Google, I can't tell you the number of times I've been on English websites. And if we go to built with and run a list of which websites have the Google Translate plugin in them, it comes up with hundreds and hundreds of thousands of websites with that in there. And a lot of governments are using them. And that makes me worried because there's been liability cases against governments for using uh, Google Translate. And it's been against hospitals, too, because there's been um, real fatalities uh, because of that. And so, you know, and now the whole DEI push, which I think is... I can talk about that next, but with the whole DEI push, what's got to be included in there is language. And if you're not treating people equally and giving them access to it, um, you're going to have problems there. So the DEI, I'm a huge fan of because it used to be it was the right thing to do. But Uh now there's so much research out there that shows you that companies um, perform better, they're more creative, and they have better cultures when they've got diversity, equity, inclusion included. And it's not just diversity. You've got to make people make sure they feel welcome. And the revenues go up from that because they they understand who their buyers are because they've got people in, internally that can communicate that. Yeah. I mean, there's a great um, Pepperidge Farm story about their uh, cookies and the, you know, the marketing team or the development team says, hey, how come Latinos don't buy Pepperidge Farm, they said, well, you don't have our favorite flavor. You don't have strawberry. Oh, (laughs) so they created a strawberry cookie. And guess what? (laughs) Flew off the shelves in certain areas. (laughs) You know, it is. I lived in the Cayman Islands for a number of years, and it's just kind of a it's a very tiny island with a cultural melting pot. And it was you know, we just didn't have the luxury back in 2004 
that we do today with all the internet and those kinds of things. Cause it was not, it was pre iPhone that will tell you the shift. Right. <laughs> so, um, I guess for me, um, it was just eye-opening cause I, we had Cuban refugees pull up to our dock, you know, and we had all of these things that my children got that great exposure, but you just realized you're not the center of the universe. Right. You just, you just, I, I know actually I, I'm, I've lived 20 gazillion different places and we, I have a place here that is Wallace, Idaho, and their mayor declared them the center of the universe, which is a joke. Right. But to them, it's real. It's like a town of 2000 people and they have a festival around it, but this is, we're a global community. We have been a global community and and, you know, what you're doing creates such a great bridge yeah. for all well, of The that. other thing that gets me is the center of everything is anybody who's doing global business and says, well, English is the global language. Um, <laughs> you're kind of fooling yourself. I mean, I just read a research study about a Japanese company who looked into productivity of their workers and they found out that the Japanese executives who could speak English fine were spending half their time deciphering emails to try to figure out what to do. Now, can you wow. imagine having to spend that much time reading emails? I mean, we get too many already. And so what are, and, you know, it seems almost impossible. Well, how do I put my email into Japanese if I don't speak English back and forth? But I do a lot of training on how to make your companies um, more inclusive across language and how, you know, there are ways that you can build to communicate so it will be easier. And then there's, there's always telephone interpreting for um, if you have to have a quick call, it's, it's inexpensive, you pay by minute, there's no setup charges, there's no monthly fees, you just pay by minute for when you have somebody on. So there's lots of little tricks on how you handle a multilingual workforce. And we have a we have a case study Boston Centerless on our website that gives a lot of information about that. Yeah, that's incredible. Because I actually I could have used that <laughs> at my last time full-time equivalent you know because that that is that's a that's very much an issue so I'm I'm glad yeah. to know about that so um, yeah and right now with people having such a hard time hiring it's a it's an untapped resource because if you're in a company that wants to hire like say a manufacturing company they hire they pay good wages they have job stability um, they offer benefits. Oftentimes it's continuing education. There's rooms for room for advancement and tapping it, you know, so people don't speak English. You know, if they're yeah. people who pay attention to detail and are hard workers, um, and if you can figure out how to train them, which we can help you with, then um, you can hire and have a really loyal workforce because it's a good job that they can have here in the United States. Yeah. Or, you know, whatever country you are listening to this. And that is a, you know, that's another good one. I, 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 I thought about that. Um, yeah, that's, I'm already ticking things in my head that goes, I could use them for this. I could use them for that, you know? And, <laughs> oh, um, do share. Do you know, share. Do share. <laughs> well, it, it, 
I, I do. I agree. I mean, um, even as a fractional CRO, I, I am setting up a company um, I, with a business partner out of Scotland. And the reason that we are doing that is for basically, I love the ITR economic reports and I study them on a regular basis. And you know, and they've talked about recession proofing and where you go when there is a recession and all of those things. Mm -hmm. So my five-year plan and my 10-year plan is strategically placing certain things in the different countries so mm -hmm. that I have a little bit of diversification, even as a small company, I'm a very yes. small company. Right. And yeah. so it's like, um, and then one of my goals is to provide opportunity, right? So you yes. provide opportunity on top of it, but how do you go into, um, like some of the mega cities are in Africa and the, the prevailing, there's all the different, different tribes and different languages there, but ITR recommended learning French <laughs> because, you know, because I thought, well, I'm, I'm from California, I'll learn Spanish or I'll learn this, you know, and it was like for the global, you should be looking at French. And I, I was thinking to myself, oh, you know, I hadn't even really, but then with your business, yes. I could get an interpreter on there that could learn French, do the French for me. And uh, yeah, 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 I started out a couple presentations with, you know, to new exporters, how many languages do you need to know? to export efficiently. Uh -huh. And, you know, sometimes we'll think, people will think about it and they'll say two or three and they speak Spanish, Chinese. This is the first time I've heard French, but it makes sense. And, I, and my premise is you're running a business. When are you actually going to have time to sit down and learn the, any, that many languages well exactly. enough to do business? And so, yes, you're lucky if you can hire people. If you're bilingual in the United States or you're a you know, a high schooler listening to this, get bilingual immediately because that just raises your, uh, you know, people wanting to hire you. Um, but my premise is, is by setting up efficient translation and interpretation, it's not a cost. You're getting an ROI on that. And once you get the process down, then you can duplicate it across other languages. It's a similar business model as to what I put out when I say fractional leadership, right? There is a point where a company definitely needs to bring in a full-time equivalent. They need to bring in whatever that is if they're a certain size. And then there is a point where small businesses can benefit from that knowledge of all the years and hire somebody fractionally to go in and fix that. We do that all the time with CFOs, right? Mm -hmm. But we don't think that you can actually outsource revenue leadership, right? You, you don't, you don't think all the time that those, that just doesn't come up. And I yeah. think with you, like when you were talking about it, it was like, I could just hire that interpreter. I could just, yes. you know, it's yes. it, as an outsource because the return on investment is higher than when I hire a full-time equivalent to just constantly be on my side. It's the same yes. kind of methodology, right? Or, yeah. um, or, and there's little tricks you can do. Like we've had clients that, um, you know, so what I'm thinking of in particular, they manufactured a specialty material and they went over to Korea to present to the government about these specialty materials for 
police or military or something, they were the only ones that translated their presentation because all their negotiations had been done in English. Uh um, And they ended up winning the deal because they were the only ones that translated their presentation and really made the people feel included and they understood what was going on. So even if you're going international and you know the people speak English, but you're in Spain or France or Africa and they've got, you know, it isn't their native language, translate your presentation. That's like baby step number one that that goes huge. And then you can reuse that content on your website. You know, so if you're doing a sales presentation in particular, it's all content that you could have on there as a downloadable asset or, you know, a landing page. Oh, yeah. And that's another, that's another good, you know, thing that I hadn't even thought of because you do when you're trying to, it translates. I think it was um, Jen Allen posted and she's with the challenger group, which I'm a big fan of challenger. Um, she had posted talking about sales being like dating. And it was funny because I had just coached a sales rep that before you ask for the sale, date a little bit, you know, yeah. <laughs> we were talking <laughs> date a little bit, but it's the same thing with what you were saying. I'm drawing the comparison because it puts it it honors people, right? Yes. It, 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 yes. may, it has them. And you're always on your best behavior when you're dating, right? If you were, I haven't dated for 33 years, but you know, I mean, it's like, you're usually, you try to cater to that person that you're talking to, right? Because you're right. Trying you want to click, you want to get along. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, oh my gosh, that just, that is so right. I love it. Okay. So what excites you about the future? Well, I joined EO a couple of years back. It's Entrepreneurs Organization. And I'm uh, loving that because I'm connected to business owners around the world. And so I'm learning so much. And it's actually ironic. They're taking off the blinders of what my revenue goals were to grow to. I'm like, huh. I could do that. I could do that. So that excites me in the future. Like I know where I wanted to get it to. And now I'm like, Oh, I could do double that. (laughs) That's awesome. Yeah. So that, and then the other thing is um, when I started off, you know, I had a really small team and now I've got a really amazing team and each person that we add in it's so fun to see the culture developing and how people support each other and how we're all learning new things and so that's that's been really fun over the last few years good yeah that infusion that's awesome yeah Mm -hmm. i've heard that that i have not attended that organization but i have a lot of people that i know that do i've done vistage um Mm -hmm. but i understand it's really fantastic it is. I, I've actually is. looked at potentially signing up with them because of all the good things that I've heard from that organization, especially for the entrepreneur, you know, so yeah. obviously EO, entrepreneurial. Oh, yeah. <laughs> there we go. There's their plug for today. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So tell me a little bit about like, from little you to today, how did you, how did you get to where you are right now? What, what took you there? From little me or how I ended up exactly here? Yeah, not, <laughs> not like a hundred years, but what was, was there a defining moment that said, Hey, I want to be in 
you know, language. I want to be doing what I'm doing today. I mean, what, what moved you that direction? Okay, so I'll give you the, the, the summary. I lived in Mexico, Taiwan, in the Philippines when I was growing up. And I have always loved languages and cultures and getting along with people and try to figuring out how to communicate, even if you don't speak their language. At one point, I said to my dad that um, in high school, I'd like to be an interpreter. And he said, nah, go get to be bilingual and specialize in a topic, which is advice I give people now, even when I'm in the industry. Now, I never got to be fully bilingual. I found that I loved the language of business. So when I got out of undergrad from Penn State, I thought I was going to go back to law school, but I ended up getting into sales and loving that because you're, you know, you're on the happy side of business. You're not on the, the, the legal side. Yeah. So I was in all sorts of business to business services um, in selling. Um, and then I owned a company before I went to business school at the Tuck School of Business at Dartmouth. And coming out of there, I went into senior roles in, in global marketing and business development. Um, and then um, I was laid off on both maternity leaves. Oh. <laughs> and I I don't want to work for anybody else anymore. You know, a VC company that can sell and move to someplace else, a large global company that decides to eliminate their corporate marketing department. Um, I, you know, I said, I want to go back to owning my own business because I can balance my family and my life. And I ran into somebody who said, you know, buy a business. And I laughed and I'm like, what money? You know, I worked in the portfolio companies of venture capital firms and, um, I, but I started daydreaming. I just searched buy a business and this little language company came up and the seller wanted to do something else, but she said it responds well to marketing. I said, huh, it's got a similar business model to what I did before. So lo and behold, I became owner. And about 10 years after that, I bought another company and I'm looking at acquiring another one. So I really- wow bought my way into something I was really interested in. And uh, I did it because I wanted to be able to balance my life better. That's, and now today, everybody wants that model, right? That's the whole work from anywhere, the whole, like, you're, you're like the happening person, right? So you, well, I, my, my kids always say, mom, you were Pinterest before, before Pinterest was a thing, right? You were like the work from anywhere before when it before it was a thing <laughs> oh we were virtual before there was a cloud I, I remember know. hearing about the cloud I'm like okay we do that but now it's gotten so much easier and I can remember researching uh, you know maybe seven eight years ago about how do you build a culture for a virtual team you know and now all this stuff is coming out I'm like okay yeah that might work <laughs> wish it wish I had it then <laughs> you know that was the way it was I was paper I've been paperless since 2001 yeah. and you know it was a good thing we had when we were living in the Cayman Islands the whole island got hit by a category five hurricane and decimated it and Everybody who had paper and photos and everything else, I had an external hard drive that was probably 12 inches by 12 inches. <laughs> you know, we've got these little things. That, and I had just, because I didn't like file cabinets and I didn't like that you couldn't search for things easy in a file. You know, you had to remember your system. And I guess I'm, I, I hate having to just always, I like that crutch of being able to search and, so I was so grateful that, 
you know, when we moved, when we were at Cayman, that that was the case. And I mean, I think Skype was coming online, but it was spotty at best, you know, yes. at the time. And internet was spotty at best. And that was the day of the life drive from Palm. I d- I've done a presentation that is called So Long Palm and how they went into it, obscurity because of Apple and new product development, you know? And I the old Palm Pilot. He said I should keep it. It's going to be an antique. I'm like, really? <laughs> I know. And now you're like, I should have kept it because you get these crazy people buy these things. But any, anyways, I it, that is fantastic. So tell me a little bit about w- what advice you would maybe give some of the people who are listening that are trying to move in that direction. Um, I'd say yeah. reach out to me on, uh, you can do it either on our website, which is Rapport Translations. Rapport is like the French word, R-A-P-P-O-R-T. Um, <laughs> because I can connect you to the direct person in your state that can give you free advice on how to export and how to get a grant to support your global marketing efforts. Wow. So either reach out to us reach out to me on the website, or um, you can go to my link tree. Um, Link tree is where I keep all my links. It's a free, I mean, I love this platform. It's a free uh, place to keep all your links. So if you prefer LinkedIn or Facebook or Twitter or Instagram or whatever, you can connect with me on any of those. So link tree is L-I-N-K-T-R dot E-E slash Wendy P's. And it's Wendy peas, like peas and carrots. And so you can get um, a few free chapters of the book. You can connect to the Global Marketing Show podcast that I host if you want to hear from other people that are doing it. You can uh, contact me. You can find our website. So it's a great place to go. Wow. Well, that would be actually, I'm already taking notes because I'm like, okay, yeah, I would love to figure out how to get some marketing grants for my global company that I'm setting up the mini me's around the world, you know, and I should, yeah, definitely. We need to have conversation, conversation around that for sure. You know, so. Yes. Yes. That's a great idea. Did you tell people the name of your book? I can't remember if you, it's called, I well, maybe you said I was an author. It's called The Language of Global Marketing. Oh, yes, I did. At the very beginning, I said it. I was like, make sure you plug your, your book because that's got to be, that's got to be an amazing thing. And I, I'm going to, I put it on my list. I'm an avid, I work out and listen to books. You know, <laughs> that's how I get to 5 million of them. I'm like, Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I love so it. I recorded uh, the audio version. So you can find it on Amazon or Barnes and Noble or any of the places. And okay. um, the, I recorded the audio version in a wine cellar in my basement that I use for storing gifts. <laughs> <laughs> but it doesn't last awesome. long enough in a wine cellar. So, but it has really good audio. <laughs> That's awesome. That is very good. And so um, mostly I just, this has been an amazing podcast. Thank you so much. I want to thank Wendy Pease. Um, she just gave all her plugs of where you can go. And, uh, we laughed a little bit. We, we learned a little bit about the globe today and I've got like seven or eight nuggets that I'm going to take back for myself and, and my company. And so I just, 
I'm so grateful for you and for everybody who's listening on this podcast today. So thank you again, Wendy. That's oh, awesome. It's been my pleasure talking to you, <laughs> Valerie. And we'll schedule time after this so I can introduce you to the person in, um, in Idaho. So oh, looking okay. forward to it. Yeah, no, that would be awesome. All right, there it is. This has been another great episode of The Revenue Maze. Thank you so much and see you guys next time. Thank you all for joining another great episode. For show notes, links, and resources, visit revenuemaze.com. And never forget, you are why. 